Father, we thank you for our time this morning. We thank you that we can be here and that we can look into your word. We do pray what the words of that song said. Show us Christ. Lord, show us Christ. We just want to proclaim him, know him, and then thereby, through the power of your spirit, live to his glory. So do that this morning as we look into your word. All for your glory, in the name of Jesus Christ we pray, amen. Well, I'll take your Bibles with me this morning, if you would, and open them to our study of 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, last Lord's Day, we began to look into what is really the final section of Peter's small epistle to the true Christians, as he stated back in chapter 1 and verse 1, he is writing to those who have a same or the same faith as ours. That means that this is for all those who truly believe upon Jesus Christ, what Peter is saying here. Those who know the Lord and Savior, those who have repented of their sin, those who have embraced Jesus Christ by faith as the only satisfactory payment for the penalty of their sin. And so this is for us. This is for the bride of Christ, the church. And we are being encouraged to remain steadfast in our faith. I was reading the verse that was on the screen before us this morning from 2 Corinthians, which really is a verse about faith, remaining strong in the faith, trusting in God. We are encouraged here in 2 Peter to remain steadfast in the faith as we live here on this planet, as we are continually bombarded each and every day by the lies of false teachers. In fact, turn back for just a moment, back to chapter 1, because you remember back in chapter 1 how we all were exhorted to apply all diligence when it came to the living out of our faith, which finds its grounding in the promises of God. You notice what Peter says, beginning in chapter 1, verse 5, Now for this reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. The reality of who we are in Christ and living out our faith is the practical aspect of Christianity. It is the outworking of the very trust that we have in Jesus Christ as our Savior. And then as we turned over to chapter 2, Peter describes to us the very character of false teachers, the very character of those who lie to us so often. They are those who, by their very words and through their very lives as they live each and every day, they deny Christ 
Even though they might profess to know him, they are actually denying him by denying the actual history of God. They actually claim by way of actual words and of, by way of implication through their words that Jesus Christ is not coming back. That what Jesus said and what the prophets of old had proclaimed and said is not true. And false teachers inevitably, inevitably attack the second coming. And we see this as we turn the page into chapter 3. Peter has been refuting this central lie of the false teachers all along, and it comes to fruition here in chapter 3 when it says, where is the promise of the coming of Jesus? Verse 4 of chapter 3. So Peter is pulling the curtain back, if you will. He is exposing them for who they are. He is exposing the error. And all of us who are Christians ought to be thankful for what we have heard. We ought to be thankful for every word that God, through the Spirit, inspired the Apostle Peter to write these words for us. Because in the end, we know that there is a purpose to all that we see happening in our world. We know that there is, in fact, God involved because of what we see happening. The past history and the future have a purpose. Jesus Christ is, in fact, coming. Now, just think about it for a moment as we just start our time. What would life be like if Jesus was not going to return? What would life be like? What would it be living in this world if this is all there was? If this world is the only heaven that you and I could ever imagine or know? Well, I can tell you what it would be like. None of us would have any hope at all. Each and every one of us would attempt to scratch our way into some kind of placid place of existence through means with which the world supplies. Because in the end, if this is all there is, then we too have to live by the words that many have said in the past. Let us just eat, drink, and be merry or tomorrow we die. If this is all there is, if this is it, then you and I have no real hope, and the land of no hope is just another name for continual despair. That's the reality. Christ doesn't come, we just live in the land of despair. We live in the land of trying to somehow get better for ourselves when in fact it will never be better at all. But that's not us. That's not us as Christians because we have hope because Jesus is coming back. There is a promise that is given and there is purpose to all that is happening. 
You and I as Christians have not discounted God like the false teachers have. History is going somewhere. There is an end to all of this. And for the true Christian, you and I, it is a glorious end. Therefore, because we know that, then you and I must have the proper response in knowing that. If our faith is to be steadfast, if our faith is to finish well, then we must respond properly to knowing just that reality. And I want us to focus our attention this morning on that issue. Notice what the Apostle Peter says, beginning in chapter 3, verse 11. And I'll read down through verse 13. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way. Of course, he's talking about the earth in verse 10. The earth as we know it, what we live on now, this terrestrial ball that's hanging in the celestial skies that God has created. All these things are to be destroyed in this way, in the way in which is by fire. And we'll see that here in a moment as Peter mentions it again in verse 12. So since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? looking for and hastening the day, the coming of the day of God, on account which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt away with intense heat. But according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. It is as if like a concerned father that is about to depart earth. Peter has one more very important thing for us to remember. Verse 11, since all these things are being destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? In other words, it is in light of verse 11 that all of us Others are to be asking, what kind of Christian am I to be? It is in light of verse 11 that you and I should be asking ourselves as Christians on this earth, how should I then be living? This is an important issue that all of us must be thinking through. We cannot just go along throughout the days and claim our Christianity and be the the non existent, non-life-living Christians that many profess and look like. If we know that Jesus is to return, if we are anticipating that final day, by the way, notice in verse 18 that Peter calls it the day of eternity, See that at the end, to Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. If we are longingly waiting for our glorious future that God has planned for us who love Him, then Peter asks, how should that be affecting our lives right now? You know the truth. You shouldn't be duped by the false teachers because you do know the truth and you know their character. They discount God. You do not discount God. You take God at His word, then therefore how should you 
you're living right now. In other words, shouldn't the future coming of Jesus have implications upon my life right now? Now, I just want us to notice a change here as we begin. A change in the phraseology that Peter is using. Because Peter is describing here, in, from verse 10 on, he's describing two different events. Two different events. The first event he mentions in verse 10, you notice, he says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. That's one event. The day of the Lord. That is the day of coming judgment. Jesus Christ is going to return as judge. He is coming in judgment. And He is going to return in judgment. You remember back in verse 7, for the destruction, judgment and destruction of ungodly men. He's coming to destroy. He is coming to judge all who have rejected Him. All who do not want Him as Savior. They have rejected His gesture of salvation. But that is different than what he is talking about in verses 11 through the end of the chapter. Because you notice in verse 11, he mentions it as, since all these things are to be that way, what sort of people ought you be? Looking and hastening, notice verse 12, of the coming of the day of God. And then in verse 18, he mentions it as the day of eternity. In other words, our final glory in the new heavens and the new earth. That's what he's talking about there. So the first one is destructive judgment, the day of the Lord. And we know that is coming but we long for what comes after the day of the Lord. We long for that. We are looking to that in its ultimate sense. We are, as we will see, hastening the coming day of God. We long for the eternal day of God, which is the eternal state of our righteous glory. That's what we long for. And since all these things, Peter says, are to be destroyed and we know it's going to happen. And after that, the day of God comes, the eternal state comes, then what sort of people ought you to be now? How should you be living now? And by the way, by the way, it sounds like a question, doesn't it? Even the words in verse 11, as we have it translated here in the New American Standard, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? But you notice that that verse doesn't end the sentence. There's a comma there, which takes us into verse 12. And verse 12 has the end of the sentence punctuation. And you notice that the end of the sentence is not a question mark. At the end of the sentence is an exclamation point. Peter is not asking a question. Peter is making a statement. Peter is making a statement. He said, the, the exclamation point is there because Peter is making a statement about how we are to be, not asking a question about we need to think about how we should be. 
In other words, here is what you are to be like because you know that this is coming. Exclamation point. And so when it says, what sort of people ought you to be, it is simply implying just how we should already be because we know it's coming. Because we know it's coming. In other words, if Jesus is coming to reward all those who are His, if He is coming to take us into His righteous kingdom, then shouldn't, we, shouldn't that already be having an impact on our life right now? See, that's the implication of Peter's words. That's the implication. In the words of the Apostle Peter to the church at Ephesus, or the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus, he wrote it this way. Walk worthy of the manner in which you have been called. Peter's saying, listen, this is what you've been called to. This is what you know. You know it's true. You're not discounting God. Then live this way. This is how you ought to be living. So what kind of people are we to be? Well, we live in this world, but this is not our world. We are not to love the world nor the things of the world, John tells us in John 2 or in 1 John 2. Peter says that we are aliens and strangers in this world in 1 Peter. We are aliens and strangers. We are to keep our behavior excellent among the Gentiles. We have our citizenship in heaven. In fact, we are like those in Hebrews chapter 11 who are looking for a city not made with hands. This is not our home. So how then should we be living right now? That is simply to say, beloved, that belief in Jesus, which brings with it belief in the coming day of eternity, the coming day of God, comes with implications for our lives right now. And Peter is listing them here for us. And so I just want to begin to highlight some of these this week and next week as we look at these. The first is that we are to be, notice, looking for that day. Verse 12, looking for, he says, looking for that day, right? Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, verse 11, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for that day? Do you notice that Peter is saying to all of us, through all the implications which flow from us knowing that Christ is coming, that the day of God is coming, that all of these implications are to be lived out under the overarching characteristics of holiness and godliness. In other words, however we are living today and how we ought to be living today ought to be undergirded at least on this foundation of holy conduct and godliness. In other words, our lives are to be set apart in conduct and we are to have an attitude of Christ in all that we do, godliness. 
That is simply to say that these two characteristics that he mentions here in verse 11 are the undergirding of everything that we do as we hope for the day to come. And so holy conduct and godliness is undergirding this first characteristic or this first uh, implication, which is looking for this day. And so how do we live that out? How do we live out this looking for the day with holy conduct and godliness? Well, first of all, we have to strive that each day our expectation and hope are not based upon what we see or what we hear in the world. That's what the verse was saying behind me when, when we were beginning our service. Faith, we have faith in things not seen. For the things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are not seen are eternal. We strive each day and our expectation and hope are not based upon what we see. It is not based upon the things of this earth. And maybe this is the most important thing we hear today. Because you and I would not be so despairing, we would not be so concerned with our day and with what is happening in our day if our expectation was on the day of eternity. Me and the elders were talking this morning and One of the men in the room said, I'm so glad for having a, a place of rest to come. Talking about being at the church, we were, we were so thankful just to be together. And I said, refuge, it's, it's a refuge in the storm. It's a harbor. We're so glad to be at the harbor. Why? Because the world is such an onslaught of trouble. The waves are always battering the ship Life is always one up and another down. And sometimes we get to the place where we start to despair. We're so concerned with what's happening, and yet we would not be as concerned with what is happening if we were carrying ourselves in holy conduct and godliness in this hastening or this looking for the day of eternity. In fact, the very center of our Christianity is to believe that the world is doomed to judgment. Right at the very center of the very reality of the Christian reality is this reality of doom. You and I have no question about that reality. We have no question of what God has said that He is going to do with the world and therefore we are not to despair. I think this is a big problem in the church today. Too many Christians, too many professing believers are so hopeful of this world that we may not be any heavenly good. We're so hopeful that this world will somehow repair itself and somehow become a place where in which we can live the life that we've created in our mind that we are really no heavenly good. In fact, it's even sad to say that many who have professed to believe in Jesus have soon after left the faith. They've left the face. Why? Why? Because Jesus didn't come and fix their life. Because Jesus didn't step in and make their life better. 
Sadly, that's sometimes how we even evangelize people. In the evangelical church today, there's this easy evangelism. We tell people to come to Jesus, to believe in Jesus. He's going to make your life better. He's going to fix all your troubles. It's not the gospel. It's not the message of the gospel. The gospel says to mankind, repent, because you are in rebellion against God. You are under the wrath of God, and this world is heading for destruction. It is the words of Jonathan Edwards in that famous sermon that he said, we are sinners in the hands of an angry God, and we are like one being held over the precipice of fire, hung only by the thread of a spider web's weaving. There is no hope without God. The gospel says, repent or or you are going to be destroyed. Listen, beloved, the world has no hope. The world has no hope and therefore repent and believe upon Jesus Christ. He is the only hope for rescue. There is no other. And Peter's saying, listen, Christian, you Christian, you should be living in light of the massive, undeserved grace of God that is going to be revealed when Jesus is fully revealed in his glory. We ought to be living right now in that holy conduct and godliness because of this massive amount of realized grace that we have from God, knowing that God is going to wrap all of this up in one big fell swoop of heat. It's coming. It's coming, and it should have a real impact on our practical everyday living. This was always on the mind of Peter back in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 14. He said, Do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. Right? You didn't know. You had no understanding. You, you knew there was a God. You rejected that God, and yet you had no understanding of what's coming and now you do know and so don't live that way but like the holy one who called you you be holy yourselves in all of your behavior what's peter doing what's peter doing here he's saying live now a holy life in light of the coming eternity Live today like you're living in the eternal kingdom. Be living for eternity right now. Therefore, these characteristics of holiness and godliness ought to be flowing to every aspect of your life. We are to be like the Holy One who called us. If we are... Children of God, if we are indeed headed for His kingdom, then we should behave in a manner consistent with our identification. We should behave consistent with who we are. And so that's Peter's first exhortation. He says, look for it. You know it's coming. Since these things are going to be destroyed in this way, then as you live out this holy conduct in life, be looking for it. 
looking for it since you're headed for eternal glory, since you're children of the King of glory, since God has delivered you from the day of judgment, since He has transferred you into the eternal kingdom of His Son by faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, then you should be living in such a way that you are looking for that day. And then Peter says, secondly, not only looking for it, but hastening the coming of the day of God. Hastening the coming of that day. Not only are we to be looking for it, and our lives of holiness and godliness show that out, that we're looking for it, but we ought to be hastening that day. In other words, not only should we be watchful for it, but we should be eagerly desiring its coming. I would dare say that many a Christian today is eager for Christ's coming. Why do I say that? Because there seems to be so much fear happening today. We often will say that we're not fearing, but our actions show otherwise. Many a Christian today is stockpiling goods because the future is so unknown. Filling their can, filling their their cupboards with canned goods and all kinds of other things because the future is unknown as to what kind of turmoil might come over the next week in our world. After all, we have riots breaking out all over the place. We have ideologies of people who are competing for the minds of the world. We have private companies today that are overstepping the laws of the land. The future seems so uncertain. So many just live in fear. And if the Christian today was living in eagerness for the day of Jesus, we would not be fearing what's happening in this world. So if I'm looking for the day, and if I'm living in the eagerness of that day, then that means in my Christian life that I'm going to be dealing with anything that is unholy and anything that is ungodly, whether it's attitudes or actions, so that I won't be ashamed at His coming. See, I want to have confidence and not shrink away at His coming, like John tells us to have in 1 John 2.28. We don't want to shrink back. We don't want to be like Adam in the garden when God comes and we hide ourselves. When we're living in sin, when we are refusing to forsake sin, when we refuse to confess sin, the reality is we're not looking for that day. We certainly don't desire its hastening. 
But when our life is being lived out in striving for holy conduct and godliness, when we are confessing sin and our desire is to, to live out those truths in holiness and godliness, and we're striving to be like Christ, then we are, in essence, looking for that day and desiring its coming, and we will not be ashamed. We will not shrink back at His coming. Listen, you want a you want a practical help for you when you think about sinning? When you are in a sin, the next time you willfully th- sin or want to sin, think to yourself, "Would I want Christ to return right now? Would I want Christ to come back right now?" While you're engaged in that ungodliness, Listen, life can change in an instant. Here today, gone in a second. There are no tomorrows. And so if we are desiring the day of God to come, if we are desiring the eternal state to come, doesn't that also mean that we are desiring everything that has to happen before that to come? What must come first? Verse 10, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord must come first. It will come like a thief. And that's why Peter reiterates it again here in verse 12. We're looking for and hastening the day of God on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. He said that already in verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens are going to pass away with a roar, the elements are be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Judgment happens first, and then the day of God. The day of judgment, that's why Peter says it again. In other words, if there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth, then the old one needs to be destroyed first. And so for the day of God to come, the day of the Lord must come first. Judgment comes before the new. And that destruction comes from God. Let me say that again. That destruction comes from God. It doesn't come from man. There's nothing man could do in which he could create this kind of scenario from his own being. I'm waiting for the day for our foolish leaders to declare a national emergency on climate. That it will be a national emergency that we all must comply to these foolish rules and regulations because it's a national emergency that if we don't do something, the world will be destroyed. No, it won't. God destroys it. This is divine judgment through the power of Christ to whom has been committed this judgment. It will be the work of God. And so Jesus comes at the end of the worldwide tribulation period. 
all the church age saints have been raptured before the tribulation begins. And then at the end of those seven years, Christ returns to get a, and we get a glimpse of part of this judgment, this day of the Lord of Christ. We get a glimpse of that in Revelation, the entire, almost the entire book as we studied it. From the judgments of the tribulation period. And when the trumpets are sounded to pronounce the judgment of Christ at the end of the tribulation, when all of that horrific time of judgment upon the earth and where much of the population of this very planet is perishing because of the judgment of Christ, then at the end of that, Christ will come and reign on this earth for a thousand years. Satan will be bound. Christ will reign. And more of this judgment comes as Satan is released again upon the earth to deceive people who have continued to reject Christ. And then the final destruction of the entire universe happens. You can read about it at the end of Revelation. You can read about the new heaven and the new earth. It's not going to be remade. It's not going to be a remanufactured earth. It's not going to be something recycled and refurbished. No, it'll be a new heaven and a new earth. The word here is kainos. It is something that is qualitatively new and different in every way. Jesus Christ has given humanity plenty of warning that it's coming. All you have to do is read the Old and New Testaments. You see that it's going to come. And all you need to do is not discount God. Don't discount God. The universe is going to be consumed and the elements will melt with intense heat. By the way, you know what the elements are? Anything and everything that makes us up. All the molecules, all the unseen things, all the little, little particles that, that, that go, all of that will melt. The elements, all of the microscopic parts that make up every created thing are going to melt with intense heat. <laughs> I have a burn barrel at my house. I like to put things in there and burn them. I burned a lot of things in there, a lot of wood, a lot of cardboard, a lot of objects. And even after it's all burnt, you know what's left? Burnt matter. It's all still there. It's all just changed. The molecules are remanufactured. There's something different, but there's still molecules. There's still microscopic parts that are holding it all together. But that's not going to happen when God does it. He will uncreate it all. Is it any wonder Peter says it's God's day? It's the day of God. It's the day of eternity. Every system will be melted away. Every social system will be gone. Every economic system will be gone. Every religious system will be gone. Every scientific theory will be gone. Darwinism, evolution will be melted away. Astronomic systems will be gone. Everything will be destroyed. 
and man's day will be over. The corruption that was ushered in by sin, the corruption, the sin that polluted all that God had created will finally be destroyed. Hallelujah. That's why Peter says in verse 13, but according to his promise. That's it, isn't it? People say, prove it to me. It's according to the promise of God. That's all I have. That's all the proof you need. You don't need any other proof. You don't need any scientific explanations. You don't need any of those things. All you need is the promise of God. God said it. It is going to happen. Don't discount God. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth. Listen, we are living by what we see that is not seen. We don't, we don't walk by what we see. That's not faith. We live by what we do not see. It's according to his promise we're looking for a new heavens and a new earth. We're looking for and hastening the day of God. Why? Because with it comes a new heaven and a new earth, and what? In it righteousness dwells. You see, that's completely new. There is no sin. There is no death. There is no sickness. There is no virus. There is no fear. There is no temptation for any of that. There is no false teachers. There is no lying. Everything we hear will be true. It will be absolutely true because it's a new heaven, new earth. Righteousness dwells there. Why do we believe this? Why do we believe this? Why would anyone believe this? Because it's according to God's promise. It's according to God's promise. We do not have a God who lies. We have a God who can only tell the truth. That little adage that school kids play sometimes and say, what is it that is impossible with God? Well, it's impossible for God to lie. God cannot lie. God cannot go against his character. And so when he says the old will pass away, behold, the new will come, that will in fact be. It's according to his promise. Not according to scientists. It's not according to academicians. It's not according to people with a lot of letters after their name. It's not according to politicians. It's not according to world governments. It's not according to any of that. It's according to His promise. Listen, we all know this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Our new administration is not going to fix America. Any more than the old administration could fix America. It's doomed. The world is doomed because of sin. 
So how should we be living? We should be living according to his promise. We should be looking for that day. We should be hastening its arrival because all things will be new. Righteousness will dwell. Let's listen to Isaiah. Isaiah 65, verse 17. For behold, here's what God said. I create new heavens and the new earth. Listen. And the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. Think about that. You want to know how much you're going to care about this place when the new heaven and new earth come? Zero. You want to know how much you'll remember about this place when the new heaven and new earth come? Zero. You know how much will come to your mind when the new heaven and new earth come? Zero. I'm creating a new heaven and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. We're not going to miss this place. We're not going to miss it. In fact, we'll not remember it at all. So why are we so absorbed in it? Why are we so absorbed in it? We'll be so mentally absorbed by the new heaven and new earth that the old won't even come to mind. How great is that? How great is that? I can't wait for all my bad memories to leave. New heaven, new earth, no sin, place where righteousness dwells. (laughs) This is our hope, beloved. This is our hope. It is this that we have to have set on our minds. The question is, do we believe it? That's the question. Do we believe it? If we believe it, then let's live in light of its reality. Let's live in light of it. Let's have a steadfast faith that continues on regardless of what's happening around us. Let's be proclaimers of the gospel with words and deeds. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, your word is heavy. Not burdensome, but heavy. It is, as your word tells us, it is sharper than any two-edged sword divides down to the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Surely each one of us recognize areas in our life where we have not done what you have asked. We have failed to live according to these words. We are not holy in conduct and godly. The only hope we have is your gracious mercy. Lord, we know that you have 
accomplish the outpouring of your wrath upon your son for sinners like us. We know there is forgiveness in Christ. And so we pray, Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for living in fear. Forgive us for living in ways that we ought not. Forgive us for holding so tightly to the things of this world that were no heavenly good to you at all. Forgive us that that we're so easily duped because we're so comfortable here. Lord, help us remember that we're sojourners, we're aliens. This world is not our home. Let us look to that wonderful day, both the day of judgment of Christ and the day of you, the day of eternity, when we will have a new heaven, a new earth, a new home, and there will be no sin. Lord, we long for that day. Help us to live according to that longing. For the glory of your name and the praise of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.